Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Paleo Valley Essential C Complex. Let me just establish how I feel about vitamins, right? Like, A, not all vitamins are the same. Food-based, high quality is the game always. Bioavailability is super important, but really, I want people to appreciate it. Like my take from my friends, we should be getting whole foods whenever we can, but I have to be honest, it's tough to be hitting some of these things and sort of maxing out on the levels of vitamins and minerals sometimes just because, you know, you can't do it. And I will say, generally speaking, we don't take a ton of supplements in the Starrett no. household. We really focus on ones that we think have high quality ingredients and will actually make a difference for us. And one of the things that all four Starrett's take every single day is Essential C Complex. Yeah, it's it's a no-brainer, especially since, look, I'm, you know I'm recovering from this little surgery I had. Just a little, just little, a little one, little surgery, a knee replacement. Connective tissue health is the thing. The fascia is the thing. And if you're not having like front loading the vitamin C, you're missing out on having connective tissue, like the possibility of red connective tissue. Doesn't you could be eating all the protein but not getting enough vitamin C? That means you're not you don't have Absorbing the building blocks. Well, you don't have the building blocks to do what you need to do. The other thing I love about this product is most vitamin C supplements have are nothing more than ascorbic acid, comes from GMO and other highly processed yeah, it's just, items. It's not even a food. Paleo Valley. Essential C is made with all organic superfoods. So I know if I'm going to take the time to take it, I'm getting a really good product. Yeah, it's easy. Look at it as like insurance. I mean, yes, you could have all the power fruits in the world or you can hit the Essential C. I've been on the Paleo Valley. It's part of my rehab plan. If you want to try out this awesome product, go to the readystate.com slash Essential C, the letter C, and use the code readystate for 15% off. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Keon Aminos. Let me be just straight up. I have been on and eating Keon Aminos for a long time. This is true. One of the reasons I like them is that I feel like it's insurance. So one, sometimes I don't always want to eat or can't always eat beforehand. They're very convenient. I always have kind of a little bag in my in you, my bag. You really use them for like a pre-workout, pre-exercising supplement, right? Yeah, because remember, what we're really trying to do with exercise is turn on the machinery. So if I have all the building blocks in there and I don't have to eat a lot, you know, one of the things that I think is important to understand is that not all proteins are created equal. So when I eat the aminos, man, I'm maxing out. I have all of the the building blocks of protein synthesis. Plus, I'm talking about muscles. I'm talking about connective tissue. I'm talking about feeding the brain. I'm talking about all, like even the gut health. It's automatically accessible very quickly. What is also awesome about Keon Aminos is they are 100% plant-based. There's zero artificial ingredients. And they're just really zero solid stomach upset quality products. So I get this huge dose of like basically pre-digested high-quality protein in the form of these aminos, covers my sort of need, so I'm not ever sacrificing my lean muscle mass, my which is really the goal as we age. If you want to check out Keon Aminos, go to the readystate.com slash aminos and get 20% off your first purchase. Salema Masakela is a beloved commentator, journalist, host, and Emmy-nominated producer, best known for his work across Vice, E, ESPN, ABC, National Geographic, and Red Bull Media House. A relentlessly curious narrator of the human experience, he thrives as a black man who has historically been the only in the spaces of action sports and entertainment. The son of South African jazz legend and activist Hugh Masakela, Salema's roots are as South African as they are New York City and San Diego. Music and water being the most influential parts of his life. At the age of 16, he felt at home on a surfboard. At eight, he'd find him sitting at Birdland in late night jazz sessions with his father and Miles Davis. It's this unique life experience which paved the way for him not only to become the face of ESPN's X Games, but also a musician himself, recording underneath the alias Alakasam. That's Masakela backwards. His recently launched podcast, What Shapes Us, explores he and his guests' human experiences, who they are, what drives and gives them joy. It's this mission to highlight people and places through a mold-breaking lens and redefine culture. He's the co-founder of Stoked Mentoring, an organization dedicated to mentoring at-risk youth through action sports, and the host of Hyundai's series, The Unadventures, on Tastemade Network. In 2020, Salema was also welcomed on the board of directors for Burton Snowboards as a general advisor. 
Salama, welcome to the Ready, Say Podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me. It is a high honor to sit with you on this Friday. Let me just get right to the burning question everyone has, which is, I feel like your airs aren't very good backside, one. And do you feel like that's because you're just like an adult-sized man who actually back squats and has muscle mass? I mean, that's the kind of ding on you on the internet. You know what? It's the truth. And backside airs have been the bane of my existence since time, just because everyone has a thing that they that they're not that is like their Achilles heel. Like Tony Hawk, I forget there's a trick that he can't do that he told me he couldn't do. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I can't. I just can't grab my board that way. That's why I always do it this way. And I was like, oh. But um, yeah, backside airs are, I think it's there's just too much mass going on. The lack of quad dominance just makes it hard for me to get back there. What I love is- Did you just is, say just, quad dominance? Because I mean, you know, Kelly now wants to be your best friend forever. You said quad dominance. Yeah, and quad dominance is something that we say around the yard. At Deuce. <laughs> is that because you you don't you're too quad dominant or you want to be quad dominant? Like that guy is quad dominant. Check out the quad dominance on that woman. I was once quad dominant, and then I learned how to recruit everything that was going on behind me and became a better athlete. And so yeah, now I the, the quad dominance has ended. <laughs> we have so much to to start with, but let's take a, just a slightly different tack for a second because a quick bio of you, which everyone has heard, and I think you're living under a rock if you haven't been involved in action sports and all of the advocacy that you've been doing for a minute. Don't think you're going to skip over all those questions. Oh, I'm not, you're coming back, woman. Okay, That's why you okay. keep me honest. Right. But you have seen the evolution of these, we'll call I don't action sport isn't the right word, lifestyle sports, surfing, skating, Men and women are going higher, they're going bigger, they're going faster. Do you feel like we've seen sort of the modern athleticism and training of kind of the classic sports finally infiltrate these these communities? Because it's sort of bananas what people are doing now, like truly bananas. Absolutely. For years and years and years, it was highly uncool to go to the gym as an action sports lifestyle athlete. Like you going to the gym mate, meant doing your sport more. But God forbid people found out that you were training. It'd be like, <laughs> what? Training? Bro, you don't need to train. You just, you just need more time on your board. And that was, uh, you needed more time in the, on your board and you needed more time at the bar. Like before contests, surf contests, snowboard contests, skate contests, Traditionally, in the late 90s, the 90s, all the way through the, the early 2000s, the aughts, if you were not seen at the bar the night before and word got around that you had gotten to bed early and perhaps you did better than the guys who were in the bar the night before, you got shit because you were trying to be some sort of a, a superhero, some sort of like a, a boy scout, let alone go to the gym. And I think the amount of injuries that went down as a result of that and this sort of, we were butted up against a very safe ceiling of non-progression, executing all the stuff that people knew very well with more and more style, but there was non-progression. That ended in the mid-2000s when on the low, people started going to the gym and started training. And I think, yeah, that, ch that changed the game. What we've seen in the last 15 years is a, di a direct result of of sports science meeting lifestyle sports. And now it's just like, it's through the roof. You're not cool now if you don't train. You know, I think back to when Kelly and I first started watching these sports and we were also simultaneously, you know, just starting our own sort of CrossFit career and spending a lot of time in the gym and actually sitting on the couch watching like the first iteration of the half pipe at the Olympics and saying to each other, dude, if these people just squatted, you know, especially the women that, you know, at least that was my view, especially the women, like, man, they could be doing so much more here. And then obviously they have, and now w what everybody can pull off is just bonkers. Yeah, well, do you remember that the, I think it was, it was either Sochi or the Olympics before that where they did the first slope style. The number of women who had ACL injuries on skis was so catastrophic that they almost couldn't field the top 10 athletes like in the finale. at the Olympics in yeah. the finale because there were so many lower extremity injuries. It's come a long ways. It has come a long ways. And I think 
listen, I'm I'm a sideways stander. You're bragging. I, I am. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm scared shitless of skiing for that because of that. I just think like landing downhill with legs splayed with four edges is asking a lot of your body if you're not you you better be training those knees and hips and ankles and everything else to be completely like a like super mobility through all of the strength on earth and you got to be you got to be bulletproof i i like my chances landing in a actual squat position for all the things that i do cuz that's naturally how you stand up yeah you're blocked you're yeah you're blocked i couldn't imagine sending it off of a off of a big jump on skis i'd rather take my chances on a snowboard but no offense to the ski community who right now is gone i knew he was a a hater of the two planks. <laughs> okay, so I do want to talk a little bit about your background. I know you moved a lot as a kid. You know, can you just kind of give a picture of like where you were, what your childhood was like a little bit? And I'll just jump in and say I completely relate. I moved to the United States yeah. from Europe when I was 15 and was like dropping into a different world. Where in Europe? I grew up in Garmisch, Germany, in the southern in the Alps, where I skied and kayaked and kayaked and played. I think um, I also moved, by the way, to Long Beach <laughs> for high school, and I think Kelly and I had possibly the opposite experience as you from a diversity standpoint, because mm. I went from Boulder, Colorado, where there was literally not a single non-white person to Long Beach, where my high school was exceptionally diverse, and same with Kelly, who went to Mount Vernon. And I think you went from, am I, am I correct, from New York City to Carlsbad, California? Yeah. yeah, New York City to New England for almost three years, then Carlsbad, California, then Los Angeles. My family were from South Africa and, and Haiti. What was that transition like from New England and, let's be honest, Staten Island, which is important because you're a skater, right? Staten Island skaters. But how did that feel like going to the West Coast? It was like moving to another planet. You know, everything that I thought I knew, I think my, 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 my biggest reference of what Southern California was, was the Karate Kid. <laughs> I, I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, that was my Southern California, like, measure. Probably because I had a wild crush on Elizabeth Shue, who was the cheerleader the cheerleader in the original Karate Kid. But you know what I mean? Like people driving around in cabriolets and things like that. And the beef between you're from Encino and all those things. That was like how I thought of SoCal. And I didn't knew, I knew nothing about surf culture. I was skating, but I didn't really know anything about the culture outside of like what I saw in the magazines. And I had a very, very, very diverse upbringing. My, my, like I said, South African dad, Haitian mother, Puerto Rican stepfather, and I grew up in a neighborhood with everyone, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Jamaicans, West Africans, Eastern Europeans, large Jewish community, as well as an Arab-Palestinian community. And, you know, I had a girl in elementary school who had two dads, check that box, you know. And you got to learn everything about everyone's cultures and you ate each other's food and you heard each other's music and you knew you had texturally what people were about and where they came from. And you celebrated that. You knew each other's music and, and, and things. Not to mention, I also grew up in like in the birth of hip hop, like it exploded in my childhood. So coming from that and thinking like, the world is, everybody sort of understands that we're all wonderfully different. And then moving to the West Coast and, and going to a school that had none of that in a utopia that was based around like eternal sunshine and the ocean. And why would you want to live anywhere or know anything else about any other people? Look at what we have here. It was kind of a, a wild arrival. And I, I, and I showed up at a school where the only sort of diversity came from like our local Mexican population. And then in a school of like over 2000 kids, there were two other black kids in my school and neither of them lived in town. They, they specifically like came to school to play the sports. One was a track star and the other one, there were three, two, two played football, one ran track. And then it was like, Hey guys. And in my gym class that week, 
I'll never forget, like they were, te- it was a testing week and I was, I wasn't fast, but I was quick. So, you know, shuttle run and the 40 people were like, oh, and the coach showed up in my, cl- took me out of my classroom, like three days after I got there. Hey, welcome. Heard from coach, from <laughs> coach Cooper, uh, that, uh, you put up some numbers, uh, of course it's coach Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> that you put up some numbers. Wonder if you want to spend some time with us uh, this summer developing uh, for for football. And I was like, yeah, that's nice, but nah, definitely not. And then but they didn't take it that for a no, like called my house, came to see my mom and my mom was like, "My baby will not be getting beat up on your football field." And I was that was such a such a difference maker for me. And fortunately, like Everyone, like surfing was what everyone did there, surfing and skateboarding. And I was like, that looks cool. I want to try that. And, you know, the rest is history. It really changed my life. Were you skating on the East Coast already? I was. I started skating in New England because while I did live on on a couple of weekends a month still in New York with my dad, I was in a very blue-collar town in New England that was also predominantly white called Attleboro, famous for a certain... New England Patriot, who may or may not have committed some murders there. Allegedly. Allegedly. That's, you know, allegedly. But yet he sits, he sits in a prison. Allegedly. So that was a weird school. But the only kids that were cool, the kids who were the coolest to me and not clicky, were the four punk rock skateboarders. And so a kid named Scott Forbes gave me a skateboard and some Thrasher magazines, and that's how I started to discover skateboarding. So I had a little, it was like a, a little, a great little preset for getting to California. And so suddenly it was like, oh, this is, everything that was in the magazines is now where I live. Before I get to the surfing piece, I, I did want to ask you, because I've only processed this experience for me as an adult, wondering if you relate to it, which is moving in high school at a time pre-internet, it hasn't really been till I've been an adult that I realized it was really like a severing of everything I knew because there was no internet, right? Now I feel like if you move, you're friends with everybody and you can stay connected or whatever. But, you know, when I left everything I knew from where I grew up and moved to Long Beach, California in, in the middle of high school, you know, it was just a total severing because of, you know, I mean, I, I maybe exchanged a few actual yeah, written I letters. three high schools people. like you. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I wonder if, if you've thought about that or shared that experience at all. I feel like I should be paying you for this counseling fee. <laughs> I should be laying on a couch right now. I went to four, I went to four high schools. Wow. Three, three in New England and one in California. I moved into my high school in California in May of my junior year. That- <laughs> oh, e- easy. My, uh, my mother always gets mad at me. Whenever she hears me talk about this, she's like, are you sure it was May? I'm like, mom, listen, <laughs> just. You want to see the scars, mom? Yeah, yeah you're like. <laughs> just take the L and you can say we didn't know what we were doing then. It's cool. I understand you didn't have a script, but yes, it was definitely May because there was like three three weeks left in our new school. <laughs> In this new school I went to, and it's like, I'll see you guys in September. But yeah, I looked up Carlsbad in the encyclopedia to try and get a point of reference for where we were going. And there was a blurb about the motocross track, and that was it. There was a famous motocross track there at the time. It was a small town. I didn't know even it's really its proximity to the beach. But I looked it up. That was me doing the Google search for what my parents threw at me. I think I looked in like the Thomas guide, you know, like the map that had the spiral bound map, you know, and I looked and I was like, okay, all right, I see there's some water here. And that's about all I know. I went to that, remember the remember the Titans, that football league, that was my league in Virginia. And then I went to Carmel High School, which was, sounds like what it was like. I you, dropped mean, in, you mean country club high school? <laughs> and I dropped into, uh, <laughs> and it was, you know, lots of different kinds of white people, if I'm being honest. My first day of football practice, because meeting kids was, you know, I, I, Lisa played football and we went to the beach and we played football on the beach. And I was like, I have no idea what California is about. Like, I really was just felt so over my head. Wait, you went to Carmel? I did. That's like a, that's a football powerhouse. Maybe. That's very generous of you. In the 90s. When Kelly was the tight end there, it was definitely a football powerhouse. Bless you. Let me ask you this, because. 
Oh, so romantic. <laughs> you, um, <laughs> one of the reasons that we love for kids to do sports is that you have, it gives you a neutral ground where you can meet kids, right? You can meet, you find a tribe, you, you just like, you sort of get accepted at the school. Like football didn't suit you necessarily. You had this skating background. How did you get pulled into surfing? Was it a radical change? Because you were, you know, a sideways slider already in your brain. So some of the connections have to have been there. You have to have picked it up faster than the average kid. I did. And also I was a gymnast in junior high school. We call those cheaters. Yes, I was a cheater. And my neighborhood in growing up in, in Staten Island, the two buildings that I lived in, we had monkey bars that we played on where we would play tag. There's like a, a tag league now that's kind of parkour based. I don't know if you've seen it on the internet. Oh, yes. Yeah. That tag league, that was my childhood in New York. Well, the first time that someone, I saw like a YouTube clip or something of this like tag league, I was like, holy shit, like that's, <laughs> that's what I was doing. That's what we were doing. And now I'm like, oh, this is why you're like a weird, low-key, high-functioning athlete is because as kids, you made your entire reputation was based on how you could play tag on these monkey bars. And you were not allowed to touch the ground. So you had to jump from thing to thing and like run across ladders and like learn how to jump to this thing, swing around and like do a kip to get to the other thing. And if you fell, you were out of the game. And we were constantly developing these this crazy skill set. That and then doing gymnastics, like our own version of what we called hood gymnastics out on the grass or in the dirt. And if there was one kid who could flip really well, other kids would break themselves to try and gain that level. And I was that kid. And then that led to getting into gymnastics in junior high school and, and high school. So that and a little bit of skateboarding gave me the ability at 17, which is late to start surfing, to be able to get to it. And to answer your question, it started from a group of kids inviting me out to lunch like a week after I'd been at school and we went to a place called Carl's Jr., which I didn't know what that was. <laughs> Western cheeseburger changed my life. I'm what, home. Isn't it a Western bacon cheeseburger? Isn't there bacon on that? Yeah, the Western bacon cheeseburger, which I'll never eat again because I had a run-in with food poisoning about a year later, and I never went back to a Carl's Jr. ever again. But that Carl's Jr. lunch trip was pivotal because we went and sat in the parking lot at Tamarack State Beach in Carlsbad in the car with these kids, and everyone's speaking this other language, and they're watching dudes at the time what looked like to me breakdancing on water. And I was like, yeah, that looks cool, surfing. And I had seen surfing the year before in Australia. I, was, I had gone on tour with my dad for a couple of months, who was a musician. And I went on the road with him and I'd seen kids surfing and I was like, that's amazing. That looks like beat, like breakdancing, b-boying on water. Like if I ever had a chance to do that, I would do that. And that's what these kids did. And I was like, I want to do that. And they're like, really? All right, bro. Be at my house on Saturday, 8 a.m. I don't know if it's worse that you're imitating me in high school or Juliet imitating <laughs> me all the time. Like, you know, just I always sound dumb and uh, you're not helping. Thanks. <laughs> bro. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, bro. And that's how I started surfing. And, and I was lucky that these kids were all really good surfers. They weren't, they didn't just surf. They were, they were surfers. Like they lived for it. They were second, second generation in their family type surfers. And they were super passionate about it. But I think they also kind of took for granted what it was that they did. Like for me, it was just like massive wild life discovery. Getting it that late opened me up to like spiritual, metaphysical portions of myself that I did not know existed. And I really attacked it with my whole heart. A kid lent me a wetsuit. Another guy's dad gave me an old beat up surfboard. He actually loaned it to me and then I never gave it back. And they were just like, all right, keep it. And that was it. <laughs> I know you're just talking about the spiritual and the, metaph the metaphysical, like real things, but my Carl's Jr. experience when I moved to Southern California was the Green Burrito. Do you remember that place? Yes. Adjacent. Yeah, it was very, it was an adjacent food situation. So you mentioned him briefly, and I really would love to learn a little bit about your dad. I know he passed away a couple years ago, and um, 
Sorry about that. But I, I think he was a legendary musician from South Africa, and I have a feeling he influenced you in many ways. So I'd love to just have you tell us a little bit about him. And In um, fact, one of our friends was just here at the studio doing some work, and we said we were going to talk to you. And he's like, any relationship to that other Masakela? And we're, and, like, uh, we're yep. like, and he was like, yep. oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and also just to add, tack on another question. Do you think his own activism around South African apartheid has influenced your activism? Or how has or it? Or how has it? A great two-parter. Thank you for the, for the two-piece. My dad was Hugh Masakela, a legendary trumpeter, flugelhorn player, singer and activist by default. He was a political exile of South Africa during the apartheid regime and came here in the late 50s. Went to school at the Manhattan School of Music, started playing with Miles Davis and Mingus and, you know, all the greats of that era. Ended up having a huge career as he fused modern bebop jazz at the time with his traditional South African music that he was raised with and created, helped to create this sound called world beat music. But while he was experiencing all this success, he could not go home. He could not share it with his family because he spoke out against apartheid in a way that if he'd gone back to South Africa, he risked being jailed for life or killed. And it was real. He had plenty of other friends that both had happened to. What was amazing about my father and for me growing up, my earliest relationship, my earliest relationship memories with my father were spent in the jazz club with him at like five, six years of age. Like my, my dad had me on the weekends and instead of taking me to the park, we went to the club at night. As a youngster, I would be in, in the club and he'd be playing like jazz sets, which would it'd be one at 11 and then another one at like 1.30. And we'd leave the club at like 3.30 in the morning. And sometimes I'd be asleep in a booth you know, but I fell asleep to his music. I got to spend my time watching him perform and storytell. And musically, what he did was he took people on a journey that made them feel what South Africa was, what it tasted like, what it smelled like, what it sounded like. And he told stories about this this very brutal regime, this government that was rooted in a in a very genius and brilliant execution of racism by law. And I say brilliant because it worked. It worked too well that, you know, four or five million Dutch and British people were able to subjugate, you know, 25 million native South Africans to the point where like you needed to, let's say I wanted to come down. Where, where are you guys located? We're north of San Francisco. I like how you didn't get, didn't give up the zip code. Never. <laughs> if I wanted to come and see you in Marin, I would need a passport. And a reason why I would be walking the streets of Marin and someone could stop me. Anyone could stop me and ask to see my papers. And if it was deemed illegitimate that I was there, because I sure as hell wouldn't be there for leisure, I would be working for someone in the area. Then I would be arrested, jailed, never seen if I by my family, if, if they chose to do so, beaten, all those type of things. That was what my father existed in. And it was worse than that. That was just kind of one of the, the light laws, if you will. And so I got to watch my dad really passionately storytell what he was fighting for. Like he was happy to have his success, but he was also longing to go home. And people didn't believe that apartheid was going to end anytime soon. Most people didn't know what it was. Politically, it was used as a football. The United States at the time, during, under the Reagan administration, absolutely supported the South African government and tried to make it sound sound like apartheid was something that was good for the African people. And, you know, the tropes of like, you know, these people are, they're just trying to keep their people safe, et cetera, et cetera, when behind the scenes, like it was genius. And it wasn't until the late 80s, because of the awareness of, of people like my father and other artists, Paul Simon did a great job with his Graceland album, which my dad played on to help amplify that people started to be like, Hey, wait a minute, this is bad, you know? And then it would started being on the news and people started seeing the manner in which South Africans were being slaughtered at the hands of this government. And it started to change. And as soon, as soon as it was, my dad knew he was able to go home safely. He moved back to South Africa in 1990. 
and lived there until he died in 2018. He continued to travel and make music around the world, but he, he went home. So to answer your question, my father was never silent when it came to oppressed people and racism and just general imbalances in how we see people. And so for me, yeah, would it be easier if I just kept my mouth shut? Yes, perhaps. <laughs> Always is more convenient. It would be convenient for sure. Yeah, it'd be more convenient, but I would also be miserable. In that way, yeah, and especially in the last few years, some of the, the blatant imbalances and barriers to entry for people being able to live their best lives exist in some of the spaces I play in, then it's my job to give some perspective, hopefully be able to open some minds, begin some dialogue, and help people shift into the idea of opening and expanding landscape so that we can celebrate the joys of living at this level as together as possible. And that idea, unfortunately, scares the shit out of some, some people. I think it's a perfect sort of pivot to talk about one of the things we're so excited to talk to you about, sort of your current project of advocacy and door opening. But it's, I think it's interesting. We're about the same age. I think you're a couple years older than we are. Thanks. You, you're welcome. <laughs> but your back squat's still very pretty. <laughs> but and he's no longer quad dominant. <laughs> For me, you are the voice and face of a generation where we grew up seeing the sports that we engage in. Julie and I are both professional paddlers, both whitewater paddlers, river runners. And it's been really interesting to watch your career trajectory of musician, producer, face, and voice of a, of a generation of young extreme athletes or alternative, you know, non-traditional sport athletes. Fringe sports. Very fringe and, and not so fringe. I like that, fringe. And then simultaneously seeing that warp into your, you know, your advocacy and your, you know, sort of bent towards social justice. It's really been, it's fun to watch and to fun to see you aggregate your sort of the emergent phenomenon of your voice in this field really is not so different than your dad. I have no idea if there was a question in that. Well, I just want to be able to talk but, about where we're going for the mentorship. Okay. I appreciate that. You know, it, it really means a lot to hear it from that perspective. It's hard, I think, sometimes for people to comprehend what it's like to love certain activities and spaces with the entirety of your being, but never get to or rarely get to see other people that look like you or share your background enjoying it with you. It is a very, very, very strange thing. And I know that you know, growing up, a lot of times kids would say to me like, hey, man, it's really cool that like, you know, you're not a regular black guy. That, you know, you're, you're more like us. You, <sighs> you literally, you do our stuff, pat on the back. And I'd be like, thank you? Like this strange idea that like someone convinced you in how you grew up, et cetera, your family conversations around the hall. I don't know what, that like people who don't look like you don't do these things that you enjoy because it's just not stuff that they're into. You know, the idea that like, oh, well, black people just don't like water <laughs> or mountains or cold or any, any of these other like myths. And so, yeah, like I don't want these activities to be fringe. I believe that they should be enjoyed by everyone. And I think people learning are beginning to learn that the history of the outdoors is kind of messy in America and understanding like that these unfortunately were very, very safe spaces that were made to be sort of the last bastions of, of people to exist in like safety and whiteness. Like that's how the outdoors came to be so hot and cool. And when people find that out, they have two choices. One, go, oh, I didn't know that. I should learn some more. And also, how can I be a part of like changing that? Or two, become so offended or so scared that they're just going to like double down and be like, well, that was not my problem. And I feel attacked, which that we <laughs> people are so good at feeling attacked. We have a lot of those people. Yeah. So why are you talking about that here? 
it's it's for everyone. And I just wish that you wouldn't bring these politics into this space. If everybody would just be cool, we wouldn't have these problems. You're like, okay, it, if only it could be so wonderfully easy as like, if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Okay, sure. That's where I can tend to get a little frustrated and my voice can get a little more intense because we don't, we don't get any movement that way. It's got to be hard for a young black surfer, skater, snowboarder kid to feel like you have voice to make change until you're almost 50. A lot of cultural iconographic power that you have and now advocacy. Did you feel like you were missing a lever or a lever? Did you feel like you didn't have access to those gears of real change? The people you know, the brands you know, the companies that you know and worked with, I mean, you almost have like, it's taken you this long to be able to really change what you're describing. I'm going to say something that might sound strange, but if it was not for George Floyd, we would not be having this conversation in the way we're having it today. And I believe that history will look back at the George Floyd moment. And yes, we will acknowledge that we were in this very, very, very horrible place in where police, by way of a shitty culture, like a shitty policing culture, were put in, in horrible, horrible positions to think that it is okay to end the lives of others that they don't seem important because that's the power they were given. Like just, I'm just going to say it. That's the training and the culture. That's the training and the culture. And that is, that is the power. So we will have that lens and hopefully we'll look back and some things changed. But the other thing that we're going to look back on is that it was a moment where marginalized, smaller voices in a whole slew of underserved communities finally said, you know what? We're done. We're done being smaller. We're done being made to feel like we're, we have to figure out how to, how to emulate and assimilate in spaces to make other people feel comfortable with our presence being there. So if there's, if there's a problem in this space, we're going to talk about it now. And that's how I was moved when it came to, to surfing and snowboarding in particular. I was like, you know what? I'm angry. I've been dealing with these type of killings and injustices for the entirety of my life. The only time that I've ever had to beg for my life has been at the hands of the police. I could have been that statistic on two very distinct occasions where I begged for my life being in the right place, but in the, in the wrong eye so to speak. Once in a 7-Eleven reading a magazine for too long and the person behind the counter calling the cops to be like, I think this black boy is planning to do something to me. You should come and talk to him and his friend. And they showed up with the cavalry and put guns to our heads and said, if you move, we'll blow your fucking heads off. Only to find out that we indeed, indeed did have no weapons after sitting us out on the, on the, on the curb in handcuffs for an hour. And the second time when I, was, I used to clean car dealerships at night in Carlsbad. And some people were driving by and saw a black man walking through the parking lot with a trash can and, and a vacuum cleaner sticking out of it and thought, he must be up to no good. I should call the cops, send in the cavalry, shotguns. He must be stealing that vacuum. Yes, yes. He's clearly lo loading up that trash can with car radios or some shit. And they send in the whole car cavalry, five or six cruisers, shotguns, lights, the whole deal came, put me on my... I had a double barrel shotgun to the back of my head, laying on the ground, all the instructions being given. And if I had flinched the wrong way, they could have lit me up and we wouldn't be having this conversation. Both of those incidents playing a very, very, very pivotal role in how still to this day as a very successful, well-known black man on television, every time a cop car drives past me or is in my rearview mirror, I make sure that everything is in order. And it was that moment finally with, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, Ahmaud Arbery, which we also witnessed on television, in the midst of COVID and the fact that no, no one could hide, right? COVID and lockdown had us in a place where 
everyone was forced to see and listen because there was nowhere for you to go and like be too busy to know about the thing. Right. So all of us as a society, like we were forced to digest these things. And George Floyd was the, the final stroke in which people said, no, we're going to now address the entirety of the imbalances and how the history of racism in this country makes just general everyday life and, and the pursuit of like basic happiness a challenge for marginalized people. And for me, I'm like, okay, well, here's my space. This is, these are the things that I've been putting up with and I'm watching the door be closed to people who look like me. We're going to talk about this. And so that's really where I just, I no longer had a choice. Like that spirit of my father literally like rose in me. I could feel him speaking to me from the beyond and being like, my son, it is time for you to use your voice. And so that's what I've been trying to do. And there has been progress. There has been a, a wave. And I'm seeing it in, in so many spaces. Like, and I look, at like the, I look at the people who are learning to use their platforms. I've seen what Alex Honnold has been doing in the climbing space. And to see someone like him, who is the most celebrated badass on earth, right, when it comes to what he has achieved in his space, and when I watch him post about, you know, expanding the landscape for black climbers, you look, take a look through Alex Honnold's comments when he decides to use his space to advocate for opening doors. His audience, a very huge sector of his audience, all of a sudden are so pressed and so like, whoa, Alex, it was cool when you did that thing with no ropes and stuff and like change the game, but like, you can't be, what are, you, what are you doing, bro? That's not a thing what you're talking about. Yeah, stick to your lane, which is climbing. Yeah, just, just climb. Just put your hands in the bag. Don't ever think a thought. <laughs> yeah, don't think a thought, please, because that's going to fuck me up. I heard someone say, not to me, but they were like, you know, just the conversation of, of just like race. It's just like, it's so uncomfortable. And I'm like, if you think the conversation about racism is uncomfortable... Try racism. <laughs> Try that on for size. Try racism on and let me, then let me know what, what, how uncomfortable you are. Do you feel like skateboarding is more diverse or has more diverse or has a voice of greater diversity because it's always been so underground and so and more, it's more urban. counterculture yeah. and so yeah. subversive? Because, I mean, that is really truly your skating route and the, the skaters there. And do you feel like that stands in juxtaposition and maybe maybe I'm just making that assumption that it's more diverse. Does that stand in opposition? Because our sport of whitewater paddling and racing and hucking down waterfalls and things is as undiverse as it can get. Yeah. I, I do think skateboarding just by default, like just taking skateboarding out of the box is already 10,000 times more accessible. You can do it anywhere. In fact, white kids that are professional skateboarders go to the hood to go and skate like at schools and places that have become iconic. Like it's a kind of the reverse. You got to go to the places where like, you've never, you got to go and you got to get like other skaters from those neighborhoods to like to vouch for you to, so that you can like go and do the thing. So I, I think skateboarding is far more accessible. There is this thing and like everybody breaking themselves on the team type things that just like takes away race being an issue. And kids get a chance because they're interacting with people who don't look like them that come from other places to learn about these people and their struggles and how different it is. You know, like when a black kid gets busted at a skate, skate spot and a white kid gets busted at a skate spot by the cops, they generally have different types of experiences in how quick they escalate and how which kid is going to be able to talk his way out of the situation more. And so white kids learn that and see, and they're like, oh, okay, if shit goes down, I'm going to make sure I speak up so that you don't have to go through some shit. And skateboarding is, it also has work to do when it comes to the way the business is set up and, and ownership of companies. But like, yes, skateboarding, definitely the merging of punk rock and hip hop and we are all one, they're, they're way, way, way more ahead of the game. And I'm sure that in your world, by the way, I'm hosting 
I'm one of the hosts of the GoPro games. Are you guys going to be there? No. What? In Vail? Yeah, in Vail. Yeah. So they used to be called the Jeep Whitewater Games. Before that, they were the Tiva Games, and I've actually won those races. But they weren't cool. There was no GoPro yet. But maybe maybe we'll need we're to pop retired. out. We're retired now. Pop out. <laughs> pop, pop out. I'll be like, hey, I, I got some special guests. Mid-June. Listen, come on. We'll talk about it off the show. Okay, we'll talk about it off camera. Okay, tell us about Stoked. Let me just, We're very excited we about We got to tell you this. This is the coolest, and it resonates with us. And when we learned about it, it blew our minds, and we're super fired up about it. Thank you. Stoked is a mentoring organization that my friend Steve LaRosalier and I started in 2005 to use the principles of action sports, specifically skateboarding, snowboarding, and surfing, to get kids who normally would not be exposed to these opportunities how to learn how to become better people. Taking the principles of falling down and getting back up, the need to navigate new terrain and how to overcome obstacles, communication, and building mutual respect with people to achieve the goals together, having to build relationship with a new environment, you know, never been to the ocean before, even though I live, you know, five miles from it as the crow flies, but I haven't had access to it. And what that's like when a kid is able to break down this fear of something that he's been told is not for them, then harness the power of the ocean, stand up and ride a wave and be able to call themselves a surfer. What can happen in, in those six weeks that can affect the way a kid is able to make decisions in their lives? And then using building a curriculum around these different things to help kids see a vision of possibility within their own lives and who they would like to be as persons. And also them finding out that they actually, some of them for the first time, finding out that they actually have the power to make that choice for who they would like to be in this journey. And I think that is something that these type of sports, like your sport as well, you find out, you know who you are when you are, are able to overcome, find comfort in discomfort, execute a goal, where does your life go from there? I know that I, I don't even have to know you to know that how you live your lives and probably how you raise your kids, how you interact with others is based around those experiences. And so giving that access to kids who have been told that like their parents ain't shit, their grandparents weren't shit, where they live ain't shit, they ain't shit. And have them find out that like, no, not only you are the shit and here's how the shit you are. You can, these are things that you, that you can achieve if given access to them. And what are the possibilities that, that can go from here? We learned not to talk about us, but we learned that some of these experiences can even impact kids specifically on like literally a cellular level. And the backstory is for 10 years, Kelly and I ran a camp for kids uh, like with HIV, a leadership school camp, whatever, for kids with HIV and AIDS. And, you know, in so whitewater kayaking. whitewater kayaking camp, you know, and in, in the span of one week of camp that we did a year, of course, we increased the non-white whitewater kayakers in the entire world by 10,000%. But what was super interesting about it is the kids would go home from these camps and their physicians universally would report them having better numbers you know, their, their actual blood work and the things they were tracking. And that was so meaningful for Kelly and I to realize, like we obviously had been doing outdoor sports our entire lives and we, we knew that it impacted us, but to actually sort of start to see data about like, wow, this is actually impacting these kids and on a cellular level, like making them healthier. They would, they you know? would be, That's, that was crazy. They could become that. leaders, they'd become yeah. advocates, they'd start teaching. And what to one of the interesting things about, I think Stoke that really resonates with us is that we had, I mean, I think we were 5% white in over those 10 years. And we had kids who had never even floated before. So forget being in the ocean. They had never actually floated. We put them on a life jacket. Not only could not swim, didn't matter because we, it wasn't requisite to go whitewater kayaking. But kids had never ever floated or slept outdoors or made each other food. There were just so many things that we were like, okay, we have taken some of these barriers and we've set them even further away than we realize. And just the opportunity to do those things was changing. 
Yeah, man. That's so cool that you were able to get a glimpse at that, at, at actual data. Cause I, I believe that with my whole heart that, that, that is the case. And you know, it, when, when you learn some of the history of how violently some of these spaces were protected for certain sectors of people. Surfing is a good example. Surfing is a great example in this country. I mean, just the ocean in general, like there would be wade-ins in the 60s and the 50s and 60s where like groups of black people would gather together and be like, we're going to go to this beach and we're going to wade, W-A-D-E, in the shore break in defiance of these laws that were not supposed to be there. And the police would show up with German shepherds and dogs because they were called by the people who thought like, these brown people will not be dirtying, dirtying my water or my sand. And they would attack them with dogs and beat them and drag them off to jail for stepping foot in water that was not supposed to be there, be theirs because other people didn't want them dirtying their space. You know, they public pools in this country, incidents where people would just show up and pour bleach in the pool while black kids were swimming to burn their skin and teach them never to show up at these places again. And that happened all over this country for years. The history of the Sierra Club even is, is, is messy when you go back to its roots. And people, if you have that in your history, right? If you have that culturally in your history and your family, you're good and, and it's passed down to you like, don't go to these places or these spaces. Bad shit might happen to you. Of course, you're going to learn to become, learn to think that, yeah, maybe that's not for me or that is quote unquote and white activity or why would you be doing that white thing, et cetera. That's one of the beautiful things about racism is that if you, as a system, if you teach it long enough and if it operates long enough, the people who are subjected to it actually start to believe it. And that's what I would like to, that's something that I want to be a part of breaking. And I also implore people who have power in those spaces to understand that like, yeah, I as a black man who's visible in these spaces can, can say things and get people's attention. But it's people, it's the people with real power, the people who have real access they can do 10 billion times more than I can by affecting their circles and having these conversations and figuring out ways to expand the landscape and provide more access just with the things that they have in their toolbox. They don't have to go and join some special thing or formulate some big club or organization. It's just like, okay, what do I have access to that I can help to change this even a little bit? Do you see any change at all in the wake of the George Floyd murder or any other trigger that the power players in the outdoor industry, which I assume are like the Patagonias and the North Face and the all the skate companies, right? Like I assume at a business level, those companies would obviously play a huge role in yeah. this. Who are, do you think is doing a good job are, as Is your anyone ally? doing a good job? Is, or a better job now? Yeah, or any job. I think Patagon Patagonia has taken some great steps. I've seen the way they have given platforms so there are lots, one thing I can say is, is there are a lot of people of color, indigenous people, black people that have formulated groups online to advocate for themselves and do outreach. And what is cool that I'm seeing are the brands who are locating the people that are doing it right and giving them a chance to have their voices amplified and to use their platforms to engage more. Patagonia has been doing a great job with it. They have this podcast that they're doing called The Trail Ahead with an, an outdoor trail runner from, from Portland and uh, a black woman. And it's just so cool, the conversations that are being had and that these conversations are being amplified on the Patagonia platform for people who normally wouldn't get to listen in and learn how various types of people engage in these spaces. I think they've done a great job. I mean, I... Full disclosure, I sit on the board now at Burton Snowboards. They invited me onto the board in November. Prior to that, there had never been a black person, a person of color who sat on that board. Would I have gotten that call up if it wasn't for George Floyd? I don't think so. And I'm honored and humbled. I never in a million years would have thought that would happen, especially in the wake of Jake Burton's passing. 
so I am so grateful to be able to get to to see their enthusiasm in wanting to build anti-racism and build inclusion, more importantly, into the culture of the brand and being an inclusive brand. And that takes time to be able to build that into the DNA of your brand. But they are looking to do so. Um, the Ski Industries of America, of America, SIA, they just, they put a person of color on, on their board recently. And I think people are learning like, okay, the only way that we're going to be able to learn about these things is if we actually have the perspectives and voices of from within the BIPOC community helping us actually make decisions, acting in a way that holds a mirror to us to show us. Like if you don't know your blind spots, putting the same people in the room that all have the same blind, blind spots and saying like, okay, let's solve this problem. All right, let's have a diversity initiative. Great. I've seen people posting like videos of like, here's the diversity initiative. And I'm looking around in the pictures and I'm like, um, <laughs> is this like an onion post? Because <laughs> there's, no, there's, you know, like, so it's, it's welcoming in those voices, being okay with giving up a little bit of that power. But, and as I, I tell people or brands that I consult, like, stop thinking about it from a place of giving up power and start thinking of it from a place of sharing power. And in turn, by sharing power, creating more power, giving yourself more fuel, the opportunity to be a better brand and in, in, and in the end, a more profitable brand. Because I, I tell people all the time, uh, you might want to look at the numbers of the demographics of this country and um, where we're going to be in 5, 10, 15 years. You could continue to put your head in the sand and pretend like it's not a thing, but... Um, yeah, numbers do not lie. And these landscapes are going to need to be expanded for you to continue to function as a brand, for your thing to be viable, or it's just going to leave without you. Like I say, we have lots of tangential friends. We've met once. I have been following you for a minute. You've become the voice of my young, you know, shreddy, angsty teenage ripper self. You are a musician, you are a producer, you host, you're going Actor. to act. I mean, <laughs> Actors a stretch. I, I make cameos from time to time. Count it, sad card. <laughs> Count it. And it feels like you really have just come into your power. I mean, really feels like you're organizing. What are you, besides Stoked, and we, we will have all the links to that because if you, you're listening to this and want to change, support this organization, what are you fired up about right now, sort of in the in the near future that's feeding your soul? Because you are really sort of have that problem of you can do so many things so well. Thank you for, for recognizing the problem part of it, because my management and agent would be like, thank you. See, we're not the only ones who want you to fucking focus. <laughs> choose, 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 <laughs> choose, choose, choose so we can get the bags. <laughs> I am excited there's a there's a brand that I am a partner in called Mami Wata. It is a clothing brand out of South Africa, a, a surfwear brand. Everything is made on the continent. And it is sort of reimagining the lens of how we we share what surfing looks and feels like from the perspective of the largest con surfable continent on the planet and what surfing looks like across Africa. And out basically a lifestyle outdoor brand from an African spin. And we just launched a book called Afrosurf that really tells the story of indigenous black culture and the ocean through the lens of seeing endless pictures and, and stories of mostly black people surfing. And it's, it's beautiful. It's 300 pages. We curated it during COVID, utilizing a bunch of relationships that we've had via Instagram, et cetera, and built this thing Somehow or another, in like seven months, we crowdfunded it. So we sold fourteen pre-sold fourteen hundred copies to get it made. We produced those; they went like that. And then Penguin Random House just picked us up with twenty thousand copies that will go on sale globally on June fifteenth. What? Woo, congratulations! Thank you. Nothing like betting on a golden horse already. I love it. 
Yeah, all all of the proceeds from the book go towards two water therapy organizations. One is called Waves for Change, and the other is called Surfers Not Street Children. And basically helping to shift communities in and around the African diaspora by helping these communities build relationship with the ocean and feel empowered to be stewards of the ocean. And it's by default, I, I think we ended up being, we're like a weird beta test for the rest of the industry to be like, see, it actually isn't that hard. You just got to be unafraid to go there. And so I'm very, very excited about that. I have a couple of uh, shows. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really, really excited about it. I have a couple of shows um, in development right now in the scripted and unscripted spaces that, you know, fingers crossed, somebody's going to call and say uh, we're greenlit. But um, I'm still working at Red Bull. After this podcast, for sure. <laughs> Thanks. This is going to be the turning point. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll run you your money if that is the case. <laughs> you know, I'm st- I still get the privilege of being an, uh, an ambassador at, at Red Bull and the Rebel Media House, excited that we're going to have a Red Bull Rampage back this October. Still doing the What Shapes Us podcast. And generally speaking, man, just having a blast. I started a non-toxic deodorant company called Hume, H-U-M-E. You can check us out at Hume Supernatural. We have cracked the code for the actual active lifestyle non-toxic deodorant brand that works. It doesn't make you smell worse? No. Absolutely not. I'm not going to um, talk shit on any of the other brands that don't work, but... Oh, I'd be happy to because I've tried them all. Oh, we're all hippies. Like like that salt crystal I, thing I mean, you I took even, in the I was country. even using the crystal for a while, oh, and that definitely makes you smell worse. Yeah. My mother is a holistic health practitioner and basically was the beta tester for all the shit that is cool now. So the crystal was in my house during the years when I was trying to talk to the girls, and I'm like, Mom, it, it doesn't work. Where's the aluminum, Mom? Give me the aluminum. I need the Axe body spray right now. I want the bumps under, like, at least let me have some boils in my armpits and smell good and possibly shorten my life. But we we cracked the code, and very happy people have helped us be successful in the last year. So I will be on Hume in two seconds. Listen to me. A, I will send you guys a little care package, but B, like, this shit's going to change your life. You're going to be like, what? Are you... Are you kidding me? It's really good. So those are the things that I am actively focused on right now. And just waking up every day feeling like I'm in the bonus, man. There's something about midlife. When you're in your 30s, you're like, you just you just never want to see it. And then you get here and you're like, oh, this is awesome. I have been quietly investing in an account that I didn't even know that I was investing in. And now that I, I access it and I'm, I'm able to pull out wisdom and you have to live and fail a lot and make some horrible mistakes with a few successes along the way to, I believe, be invest in this account. And then at a certain point, you start to get access to limited amounts of wisdom. And I'm in the space now where I'm gotten to play with like, what would wisdom say about this? And then wisdom steps up and says, wisdom's like, hey. I wish I could have been here for you in your 20s and 30s and even your early 40s, but here we are. Let's make some some wiser choices. <laughs> it takes a minute. Takes or or a we minute. say in our family, you don't get something for nothing. Yeah. No. I'm glad I didn't have access to it then. Well, you did, but just you couldn't have heard it. You couldn't have you were just putting it, it. You were putting things into the bank at that point. Exactly. And maybe, just hang on to this, we weren't ready for your voice. Thank you. Where do I send you guys the money? (laughs) Where we obviously will link to everything we've discussed in the show notes, but where can people find you, follow you, support Stoked and all the other organizations you're involved in? Thank you. Stoked.org is where you can learn about all things Stoked. You can become a Stoked igniter. And if you live in the areas where we work in Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York, you can become a volunteer. I am at Salema, S-E-L-E-M-A, on Instagram and Le Twitter. My music is Alakazam, which is Masakela backwards. 
A-L-E-K-E-S-A-M on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you enjoy listening to music. And Mami Wata is uh, Mami Wata Surf, at Mami Wata Surf, M-A-M-I-W-A-T-A Surf on all of the platforms. And, uh, oh, Hume, Hume Supernatural, H-U-M-E Supernatural on all the platforms. So lazy. How many jobs you got? <laughs> so lazy. So lazy. So lazy. So lazy. And yeah, come by if you're in Venice and you want to um, bang some weights around, try to kill yourself, come to Deuce. Hang us out before follow, uh, follow Deuce. We need to swap. It's been out. too long. I, I can't it's actually. It's been be, too long. I've never been to Deuce, which is embarrassing because, you know, I have like 50 friends who train there. On this trip, when you come down, in exchange for me coming up and drowning with you at Lids, you guys have to come and train a Deuce. For a day. Bucket. Deal. 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 My friend, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So much. Happy Friday. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and let us know anything else that you you may need to to round this out. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You've got-